Looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order and we come to chapter 15 and it all is about, the whole chapter is about one thing and uh, so we'll cover it all this morning, have you out by four, so um, don't worry about that. All those little tasty samples in the aisles of Costco will still be there for you. Luke chapter 15 verse 1. And then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Jesus and heard him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Therefore I say that to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. And likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And so he divided to them his livelihood. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possession with prodigal or wasteful living. And when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But he came to himself when he did, and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. He's got the speech down. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father says, Speech, speech, I love you. Glad you're home. The father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now the older son was in the field, and he came and he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. 
Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And he answered and he said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots and kill, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It's right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for all that is bound up in this passage. And Lord, we pray that as we would read it and study it together, we would receive revelation and illumination from your Holy Spirit who is present with us here today. Teach us about your heart today from your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The context of these three parables that Jesus speaks is that Jesus has just spoken to a very, very large crowd of people that are following him. And he's delivered to them a pretty tough message for a crowd to listen to. He's laid out in no uncertain terms uh, what is necessary in order to follow him. And what is required to follow Jesus in this world, the requirements are quite severe, as we looked at last week. Jesus laid out those requirements and then told all of the people that were following him not to make a hasty decision based upon what it is that he has said, but to count the cost on whether this was the commitment they really wanted to make to him. And then he completed his declaration to this crowd. Now you would think that when Jesus speaks, spoke with that kind of almost severity, that kind of clarity, that demanding in what he had spoken to them, that the entire crowd would have scattered. He'd have been left standing there with the disciples all alone. But that's not at all what happened. And it's interesting, we don't know kind of the makeup of, of the crowd overall, how many stayed, how many left, but we do know that at least two kinds of people stayed in significant number to continue, they weren't frightened by what Jesus said, to continue to hear his teaching and draw near to him. And we're told that they were tax collectors and that they were sinners. And so this is the group, far from being put off by the demands that Jesus had made, they continued to follow him, eager to hear even more uh, from him. Now, Jesus' willingness to receive tax collectors and sinners, uh, and apparently, verse 2, even eat with them, was immediately criticized by some of the Jewish religious leaders of his day, two groups of people in specific, specifically mentioned, number one, the Pharisees, and then also the scribes. And when they saw Jesus receiving sinners and tax collectors and then eating with them, they were completely put off by his conduct. They think he is misrepresenting God in a terrible way. Now, how the average Jewish person viewed a tax collector they viewed them uh, pretty low. They put them on the level of prostitutes, actually. But tax collectors, um, I think, historically, um, haven't been that well thought of. 
Uh, I don't think if you're thin-skinned and you want everyone to like you, you historically became a tax collector, even to this day. Most people don't like paying taxes, and they certainly don't want to pay uh, more than taxes than they need to. So it's kind of an iffy uh, occupation if you're looking to be popular. But these tax collectors under the Roman Empire had kind of an interesting arrangement with, with Rome, an arrangement that made them pretty despised by uh, the citizens of the Roman Empire. And Israel at this time was uh, 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 inhabited, occupied by Rome and a part of the Roman Empire. What Rome would do, Rome needed money, like all governments needed money, all empires need money. So they would basically go and they divided the whole Roman Empire up into what would, we would essentially call counties. They would find a competent person uh, in that county and they would declare to him, would you like to be a tax collector? And here's how it works. We, in our analysis of this particular county, determined that X amount of dollars are to make their way to Rome, this county is to be taxed, netting this much money. Anything you can tax these people above that amount, that's between you and the people. And, and you're free to do that, and that extra amount goes to you. Well, you could hardly set up a system that would encourage corruption more than that system, but that's exactly the system that they had. So Roman tax collectors would tax beyond what Rome wanted, send to Rome what it is that they demanded, and then they would uh, proceed to gouge the people and, uh, and basically oppress them in the name of Rome. And so they were hated. Now, as much as tax collectors were hated in the rest of the Roman Empire, they were really hated in Israel because Rome didn't hire Roman people to collect taxes in Israel. They hired Jews. So here you have a Jewish man who is joining with the occupying force, the Gentile nation, that in the eyes of the Jews has occupied our land, is oppressing us, and now you as a Jew are joining them in their oppression of, uh, of the nation of Israel, and not only joining them in the support of their government, but joining them in, in picking the pockets of your own Jewish people. And so this was something that they, when a Jew took this position, it was like they'd become the, it was just a terrible shame on them and it was a shame on their whole family. It was a stigma that you couldn't get out from under unless you basically became uh, a Christian. In fact, the hatred of, of uh, tax collectors and, and Jews that became Roman tax collectors was so great it was just like a treason that uh, again would not be uh, forgiven. They were in the minds of the average Jewish person and certainly in the minds of these Jewish re religious leaders they were in the same level as a robber or a murderer or prostitutes. They were all equally despised. A Jewish tax collector could not, was barred entrance into a Jewish synagogue on the basis of Leviticus chapter 20 verse 5 where God declared, and then I will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut him off from his people, and here it is, and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit harlotry with Molech. And so uh, the love of money and the worship of money, and to them 
in the same way, the Jewish religious leaders, in the same way they looked at prostitutes and said they have thrown off all self-dignity, they've thrown off any concern for their heritage by uh, engaging in this activity in order to, to gain money uh, and, and, and threw away their character for the sake of money, so the tax collectors did in the minds of the Jewish religious leaders. In fact, a tax collector could never be a judge in a Jewish courtroom, could never even be a witness in a Jewish uh, courtroom. And so in the eyes of his fellow Jews, he was a disgrace. So it was a big deal for Jesus to receive tax collectors and eat with them. How they viewed sinners, and this is kind of a different group than tax collectors, sinners speaks of people who are like notorious sinners. So it wasn't like the average run-of-the-mill Modesto, California sinner. When a person was a sinner in the eyes of the Jewish religious leaders, they were uh, pretty good at sin and at becoming pretty well known also uh, for their sin. So it was the, and how they viewed the sinner is, well, the sinner has thrown off any concern for God, any concern for representing God in this world. And because they've thrown off any concern for God out of their selfishness and their fleshly desires, any concern for representing God, they looked at it and said, God within his rights and even more than within his rights, he ought to dismiss them, to throw them off and say, you've done this to God, God is only being fair when he then communicates to you that he wants nothing to do with you. And so the Pharisees and the scribes viewed sinners as people that were beyond the concern of God anymore because they had proven themselves unworthy of, of his, his concern. Now, one of the things that was particularly galling to these religious leaders was the fact that Jesus not only received these tax collectors and sinners, but he ate with them. Now, you and I eat in the United States of America, and most of us eat well, but we, don't, we view eating as eating. So we go through drive throughs and we get food and we eat and we eat for fuel and food and, and sometimes for enjoyment and energy to keep on moving. For the, for the Jews, uh, eating was a spiritual experience. It was a, 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 a mystical experience. When they would take out the pita bread, they put it on the table, put the sauces out, and here they've invited a couple of people to dinner, and they take off a piece of the pita bread, they put it in the sauce, they eat the pita bread, this person does the same, eat the pita bread, and everybody's eating from the same loaf. So by the time they get done with the meal, the Jews viewed that a mystical connection now occurred between the eaters because the same loaf that is in you is now in me. So they viewed it as a very much a spiritual experience, a uniting yourself on a spiritual level with who you ate with. So the Jews would never eat with a Gentile because they never wanted to be united with the Gentiles on a spiritual level or any level. So Jesus is simply blowing their minds by the fact that he receives them and he's willing even to eat with them and become one with them in, in this kind of a way. And they felt this whole thing that Jesus was doing was reflecting very, very badly on him. 
that he was essentially disqualifying himself to be recognized as a legitimate religious leader by conducting himself in this way. Here is this man, Jesus, who claims to represent God, and he is completely misrepresenting God in their minds by associating with sinners and with tax collectors. And so it's like Jesus... By how you're conducting yourself here, you are misrepresenting God in the eyes of these people by giving them the impression that God cares about them. When God does not care about them is tax collectors and, and, and sinners. And, and so that you need to break off and shun people like this so that you can properly represent God before them as a God who righteously and rightly will have nothing to do with them because of their sin and choices in life. Now, that's what they're doing uh, in, in the situation. They are upset with him because he is misrepresenting their view of God. Now, I think it's very important to understand and, and to recognize in the passage the uh, conditions by which Jesus made contact with the tax collectors and, and the, the sinners. He didn't head down to the pub and hoist a few with them. He didn't go to some kind of marginal place or what to try and be hip with them and see, I'm not so strict and you're not so and hey, can we all be friends and this kind of deal. His whole contact with them, he's been very upfront, and and he has uh, declared, this is what I'm about, this is what it means to follow me, this is what it's going to take to follow me, and his entire contact with sinners always was redemptive. He never made sinners feel comfortable in continuing in their sin, but he gave them hope that they could come out of their sin and be received by God. So Jesus, in, in, the, his, in, in his contact with sinners, it wasn't a thing of making them feel comfortable or, um, uh, again, his contact was one in which he's wanting to be a very strong influence spiritually uh, toward them. Now, obviously, in this whole thing, the perspective or the view of God that the Jewish religious leaders had and the view of God that Jesus had are two entirely different views in terms of how he views sinners and how he views tax collectors. And they cannot both be right. One is right and one is wrong. And so what Jesus does is he proceeds to correct their misunderstanding of God by telling them three parables. And the three parables all have the same message. And they all have the three uh, great words that characterize the parables, and these three parables, and that is lost, found, and rejoice. Those are the three words that characterize all three of these parables. Notice in the first parable, the parable of the lost sheep there, that Jesus asked the religious leaders, what person having lost a sheep wouldn't then uh, head out and try and find that sheep? And if he was able to find that lost sheep, would not be filled with such great joy that upon returning to his family and his neighbors, that the joy would be greater than his heart could, could contain, and he would then call upon them to join him in his expression of joy over finding the lost sheep. Now that was an image that was common to everyone in the culture. 
Sheep were getting lost all the time. Shepherds were looking for sheep all of the time. Everybody recognized this, this image within, within the culture. And it's an image that really fits for us, at least for anyone who has ever lost something that's valuable to them. And then we find it, we understand the emotion of lost, of found, and then joy. Usually when we lose something that's valuable to us, what happens? There's a panic. The panic of the loss. And then there's the franticness and the desperation of the search. And then, and can you feel it? I hope everybody's lost something in life. And then following that, that desperate search, if we find the thing that we've lost, there's this gigantic wave of relief that overcomes us and we're filled with joy and that we can't wait to tell other people about what happened and how we found the thing that was so valuable to us that had been lost. I think anyone who's ever lost a child, even for a few minutes in a mall or a store, understands this. Where did they go? The heart of a parent and a lost child in this culture? Excuse me? I mean, there is an immediate panic and then the desperation running up and down to look up all of the aisles and going so quickly. And then you find them and there's this huge relief and this huge joy uh, after you get their cheek a little bit. <laughs> if you ever lost a pet, we used to have a dog named Abby, Cocker Spaniel. Dumbest dog in history, but we loved her so much. She made us all feel smart. She's the greatest, most loving dog you could ever have. But we would lose her every once in a while. Maybe the MID guy would come, or even one of the kids or myself who wouldn't quite get the latch down on the door. The wind would come up, and the gate would open up, and there's no Abby in the back door. We loved Abby. So there's the immediate panic. She's gone. I mean, and we're like two blocks away from Tully. We're going to head out to Tully, and there's going to be mashed Abby out there. And how am I going to tell the girls, you know, our two daughters and all? So there's the panic, and then comes the whole search through the neighborhood. Abby, Abby, through the... That's the times you're glad you didn't name her Fifi. <laughs> so, you know, humiliating, how unmasculine. But you're going through and you're calling out her name all the way through the neighborhood. There's the desperation. You're thinking the worst in the whole thing. And then you find her someplace, and then... All of the joy that's filled and you come home and you barbecue her. And just to show a lesson on the thing. Now you pet her and you make some hot chocolate chip cookies or something to, to celebrate. And what Jesus is saying here to these religious leaders is that the great joy that a shepherd feels upon finding that sheep is but a hint of the joy that heaven experiences at the salvation of a repentant sinner who turns to God. Now they have no first-hand experience of heaven. Jesus is the only one on the scene with a first-hand experience of, 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 of heaven. And this portrayal by Jesus of heaven's joy, of God's joy over the salvation of a sinner would have just been mind-boggling to the religious leaders because that would have revealed a concern on the part of God for sinners, a love on the, part of, uh, uh, on the part of God for sinners. You don't have that kind of emotion and that kind of joyful reaction unless you are emotionally connected with something. Uh, 
So this was completely different than how they viewed God's attitude toward uh, sinners. And the way that the religious leaders viewed God is that if uh, a sinner had repented and turned to him, that heaven would be filled with a collective groan. <laughs> Charlie Brown said, rats, oh no, we'd have never opened the door that wide if we'd have known people like that were going to come in. But Jesus was saying to these religious leaders, this whole scene that you're watching me in right here, that brings you such grief, that causes such complaint to enter into your heart, to give you an idea with how disconnected your heart is with God and with heaven, this thing that brings you such displeasure is at this moment in time producing an indescribable celebration in heaven over what's happened in the repentance of these sinners and these, these tax collectors. Now, uh, they thought they were the ones that were properly representing God, and Jesus lets them know in no uncertain terms that, that uh, uh, he was the one, and they were completely out of touch with the heart of God. Now, I think it's important. One of the, the name Pharisee for that religious group uh, it means holiness. They had a concern for holiness. That's a good thing in God's people to have a concern for holiness. Where the Pharisees went wrong is they went to the Old Testament commands of God, and as they look at those commandments, they began to interpret them in the light of their own personalities, their own likes, their own dislikes, their own peer group, um, their own thoughts about things. And they began to interpret those commands in that way. And then pretty soon they began to determine that God was the way that he was on the basis that they interpreted these things. And what they ended up with was a God that was just like them. Very harsh towards sinners. Uh, very concerned about holiness. Concerned about righteousness and hard working and these kinds of things. And so basically they created God even in their image out of the Old Testament scriptures. So that's what they did. So they had a good goal, holiness, but they went down the wrong path. The, the great protection in our lives for every single one of us, the great protection in our lives for not wasting our lives on false definitions of holiness and God-likeness is to run every definition through the life of Jesus. Because no holier life has ever been lived than the life of Jesus. Jesus said to Philip on the night before he was crucified, he said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am holiness incarnate. It doesn't get, you can't improve your definitions than this. And it keeps us from getting sidetracked into all of these weird definitions of holiness and right and wrong and then being drawn as a result of it further and further away from a proper understanding of God and the love of God for his creation, for, for his, his people. Now, I think it's very wonderful to realize as, as we sit here this morning, those of us who know Christ, and sometimes I have to stop and remind myself of these things, that on the day that I was born again, that the news of it produced that kind of celebration in heaven. Isn't that something? That's amazing. I, I, I can believe it for you. But to stop and to think that happened, they were that thrilled over it. Wow! If I could get other people to be that thrilled over me somewhere in life. But that, that happened at the time that we came to know the Lord. That celebration took place. 
Now, let me clarify one other thing here in verse 7 concerning Jesus' comment about the 99 just persons who need no repentance. He's not saying that everyone, doesn't, that, that everyone doesn't need to be saved because everyone does need to be saved. You notice in verse 7 that all 100 sheep are out in the wilderness. It's not that one sheep goes out in the wilderness and 99 sheep are at home in, in the sheep coat. Uh, on things. They're all out in the wilderness. They're all unsaved. They're all in the wilderness of this world. They're all in an unsaved condition. But the one sheep is a notorious wanderer from the shepherd, then the 99. So the one sheep that drifts away is a picture of the tax collector, the notorious sinner that's gone forth. And the 99 represent the scribes and the Pharisees who were still sinners and needed to be saved. But they viewed themselves as being okay because at least we're not as bad as those sinners. Everyone needed to be saved. Now the second parable, the parable of the lost coin in verses 8 through 10, Jesus now uses an illustration that involves women. So he's, he's, his parables everybody can understand. He's touching on all levels of society. So here's a woman, she has ten coins. Money has always meant something. It's a, she is a valuable thing. She loses one-tenth of her wealth. She loses one of those coins. And, and, and when she discovers that she has lost that coin, she begins a frantic search. She lights the oil lamp. She begins to sweep the floor to find it. So there's the frantic search to find it. When she finds it, she is so relieved to find the coin. Her joy is so great, she can't keep it inside of herself. She's got to tell other people about it so they can rejoice with her. So she tells her family, she tells her friends, all they begin to rejoice too. So the whole lost and found and rejoicing cycle played over again in this different kind of uh, context. And again, any of us that's lost something valuable and then found it can relate to this. I don't know how many of you have ever lost a wedding ring and then found it. Oh, the panic. It's lo- Where in the world did I put that? Oh, and the search and then you find it. Oh, my. And, and, and all of the emotion that's there related to that. Or uh, I think any of us that lives long enough, we know what it means to misplace our keys sooner or later. I've never misplaced my keys and said, oh, wow, no big deal. I got three hours to find them. Always, always we misplace the keys at the world's worst time. I got I to gotta get in my car, I got to head to a doctor's appointment, and this doctor is the kind of doctor you got to wait a year to get into. Now I'm going to miss the appointment and I'm going to have to wait another year. Or you're heading to the airport and the dream vacation, and now you're going to get there on time and you spend an hour looking for the keys, and now you're frantic looking for it. And the, va- you know, the lost vacation is moving right before your eyes, all of the sites that you studied ahead of time. And it's all going to be, be gone or lose some money or something like that. I remember one of our early trips to Israel that um, we used an outfit. I, I tried to do something to try and save everybody that was going a few hundred dollars per person. So I was just doing this kind of thing with them and th- with this other outfit that somebody had recommended and all. It was a disaster. A disaster. 
incompetence on the level of the federal government. <laughs> and there was only two of them. I did not get the tickets. We did not get ticketed, and it was iffy, until two days before the trip. I am a wreck. I know I'm not supposed to be a wreck, but I was a wreck. So by the time we get to the airport, I finally got the tickets, and I've got money that has to be given to different people, quite a considerable amount of money to different people along the course of the trip. And, um, and so we're frantic and getting, oh my, and everything, getting there as a family and then taking out our own luggage at SFO and everything. Got everything out. Okay, here we are. Got out of the, you know, transporter bus to take us from long-term parking and go to move. And I left my shoulder pack with everything in it on the, on the shuttle bus. Off to the next stop. SFO. There's people on the shuttle. Anyone could take the thing or the next stop or whatever. Lost? I know how to feel lost. I know how to feel seek. The franticness, the desperation of it. Who can I talk to? Who can get in touch with this shuttle driver? You know, we're leaving in three hours. All these people think I'm smart and I got the tickets. They're on the shuttle headed to Milwaukee. So they get on the line and they reach the guy. Oh, yeah, it's sitting right here. And so he brings it around. I hugged that thing like it was one of my children, you know, got the thing and headed off. So these are things we can all relate to. And, and what Jesus is declaring to the religious leaders, this is the joy that heaven feels over the repentance of, of a lost sinner. In other words, guys, you think that I am misrepresenting God in my treatment of tax collectors and sinners. I am not the one who is misrepresenting God in all of this. You are misrepresenting God before the whole wide world and making sinners and tax collectors believe that they are outside of the concern and the care of God for their lives. He then moves on to the parable of the prodigal son, and we'll move quickly through this. As you could do three or four sermons out of, out of this particular parable, but essentially it's this. You've got two sons of a father. The younger son comes to the dad. Talking about a Jewish home 2,000 years ago, the dad's the patriarch. Great respect for your parents and for your father. So this younger son comes to the dad and says, Dad, I want my part of the inheritance. Now, according to Jewish law, you would break up the inheritance this way. The oldest son got two-thirds of, of the inheritance, or he got twice the inheritance that everybody else did. So the younger son comes in and says, I want my third of, of the inheritance. Now, it wasn't unusual for a Jewish father to... Uh, give away his inheritance to his sons prior to his death. But it would always be late in his life when he realized, I'm losing some abilities, I want to begin the transition of this estate to my sons, now's the time to do it. No good Jewish son would ever approach their father and demand their inheritance. When Jesus describes this one son as doing this, it's a jaw-dropper. You would never show your father that kind of disrespect. 
The listeners, the scribes and the Pharisees have to be thinking, somebody came over here and took the guy out for doing something like that. The father doesn't. He gives him his inheritance. And he gives him one-third of his wealth. And it is a considerable estate. It's an estate that has regular servants, has hired servants, it has fatted calves. This dad is well off. And he gives this kiddo a third. He's an adult, but he gives him a third of his wealth. What the boy is asking, and it's the height of disrespect, what the boy is saying is, I'm smarter than you, Dad, and my life is being wasted under your lordship here. There's a whole big wide world that's waiting for me out there, and I don't want to wait until you die to get the money that I need to go experience all of that and so I'm going to ask it of you and demand it of you before you, you die. It's no concern for his dad at all. He says, give me, I can't, I, I'd like you dead, but you're eating good or something, you know, and it looks like you're going to be around for a long time. I don't have the time. Can you give me this part of the estate? And so his dad gives it to him, and he proceeds, as we're told, to go out into a far country, and he squanders it on prodigal living, which means wasteful living, and God just lets you fill in the blanks on what that is. So he just goes out and he just blows through this whole thing, wastes one-third of his father's wealth in probably a matter of, of, of weeks. Now, there's always a reaping process to this kind of behavior. It's like the side of things that the movies never show. They show the boy coming to the dad, demanding. He gets the money, heads out, parties like crazy. Wow, goes out on top, the credits roll. They never show what happens after those, that decision-making. Because then television would become moral again in what it's teaching. Like the good old days of Annie and Mayberry and Lucy and all the... You know, it's funny in the old days. I'll just be a moment. But in the old days... You could plunk your kid in front of a television set and know that the morals of your household would be reinforced in them, much less be scorned and mocked. So I've forgotten the point I was making, actually, here on this, this deal. So anyway, so he goes out. Ah, here it is. It's the part that they don't show you. Listen. So they... they The famine hits, he's blown all of his money. Now when you really need money, the famine hits, he doesn't have money and he doesn't have a job. So where does he find a job? Only job he can find is with a Gentile. Here's a Jewish boy working for a Gentile. You think it can't get worse. It can get worse. The only job the Gentile boss has got for the Jewish boy is to feed his pig, his his swine. And the pigs are an unclean animal in in the uh, Jewish law. So here you've got a Jewish boy working for a Gentile boss and he's feeding his pigs. You say, it can't get any lower than that for a Jewish boy. It can get lower than that. Because while he's feeding the pigs, he, he is so hungry, he, would, uh, he is envious of the full belly of the pigs. He longs to be in the pig's place and to eat that slop that his belly would be full at the end of the day because he's getting paid less than minimum wage. He can't fill his stomach on what he's making. Now, this is a Jewish audience listening to Jesus teach this. You cannot get any lower than this. What Jesus is describing would have disgusted the scribes and and the Pharisees uh, here. 
So the Bible does, it teaches that sin is pleasurable for a season, but it is a very short season, and then the paycheck comes, and, and the regret comes, and, uh, and the shame comes. Now, at this point, we know the rest of the story here. At this point, the religious leaders, they don't know the end of the story. So to them, the end of the story could be, and there he was, and he was envious, and he wanted to eat the same pods, the same slop that the pigs were eating, and that Jesus would then end this parable by saying, and let that be a lesson to every tax collector and sinner out there. This is your end, and once you get there, there's not even hope for you in God. That's how they would have ended the parable. They're looking to Jesus to to end it that way also. But to the young boy's credit, he repents. And, and we're told there in verse 17, he came to himself. That's a wonderful thing to come to. To come to yourself is the opposite of being beside yourself. If somebody says you're beside yourself, you're insane. At least temporarily. Because when you feel that you're beside yourself, you're very happy to carry on a conversation with yourself. What you do is you get older anyway. But it's, it's, it's a description of someone who's crazy. So this guy has gone out and he's basically living an insane life for sin, all these kind of things. He's been living beside himself. Now he comes to himself and he realizes, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. Dad was pretty smart. That was a pretty good place to live. And he repents. And repentance means literally to have a change of mind. That's all that it means, to have a change of mind. And he has a change of mind about his decision-making in life. And he has a change of mind about where his decisions, the roads they put him on and where those roads are going. So he's rethinking everything about his current decision-making. And then on top of that, no repentance is complete that doesn't then result in a change of direction. So in his mind, he realizes, I've been way off base on this thing, and I'm going back home. Dad's a lot smarter than I thought he was. And he works his whole speech up. I'm going to come back and I'm going to say, Dad, I don't expect to be treated like a son anymore, but I'll just be a... Could you take me on as one of the hired servants? Because even the hired servants get fed every day at my father's estate. Now, a hired servant was different than a regular servant. A regular servant was somebody that was like your servant for life. They were like right next to family. A hired servant is who you hired by the day. And this guy looks and he says, I don't even expect to be one of those uh, uh, servants that has um, tenure. I'll just, I'll just be a day servant if you'll allow me that place. And so he returns now to come back to his father. And then wonder of wonders, in verse 20, Jesus describes the reaction of the father. He ran out with a shotgun and just blasted it over his head. He said, I never want to see you there the rest of my life. We had a funeral for you three months ago. You no longer exist. So what happened? He portrays God. The, the sinners are portrayed by the boy, the young boy. He portrays God the Father as seeing his son coming from a distance and then running out to him. Not to slug him, but to smother him with kisses and hugs and compassion. And in that culture, again, it's a jaw-dropper because older men didn't run. It was considered undignified. And here Jesus is portraying God the Father as being so excited at the repentance of a sinner 
that he is willing to do the undignified thing of running to us in order to restore us to himself. And the boy tries to get his speech out. I, listen, I'm no good and I made the mistakes and this and I don't expect to be a son anymore, but at least could you? And the, the dad doesn't even listen to him. And he says, my boys come home. Let's get him a robe. Let's get him a ring. Let's get some sandals. It was probably one of his father's ring, uh, robes, a ring that would be a signet ring for the family. Sandals. Slaves didn't wear sandals. Family members wore sandals. And he said, let's kill the fatted calf and let's have a celebration. Now, fatted calf is those, those cows that they don't let just free graze out and, you know, uh, walk off as much as they're eating. Those are the ones you kind of stalled someplace and you kept them fed and fed and fed for the special occasion when you'd kill them. It's the kind of steak that you get and you say, man, that was a really good steak. Why was it such a good steak? All of that fat that was marbled all through the meat and everything. That's what made it taste so good. So this was like the fatty steak, the good stuff. They didn't have to worry about it. They'd eat it about once a year. Kill the fatted calf. So this was enough to feed the whole village. In other words, we've got the whole lost, found, and joy thing. The father's heart is so excited about the repentance of his son, he can't keep it to himself. He's going to have a celebration for the whole village. Again, he's a description of what it is that's happening in heaven as a result of sinners and tax collectors coming to, to, uh, to Jesus. And, and so the beauty of it and the incredible heart of, uh, a picture of the heart of God the Father toward a repentance sinner, no matter how bad they've done the Father, no matter how disrespectful toward him, no matter how arrogant or how proud or how wasteful anyone has been related to the Father's resources, with repentance, this is the heart of the Father, to save and to restore. Now notice in closing here the response of the Father's oldest son. He comes out from the field. He represents the scribes and the Pharisees. He comes out from the field. He'd been working hard. Just like a Pharisee would. They were hard workers. I mean, they towed the line. They went, okay, they're going to do and they're going to be and they do what here and stay right in this line and no wandering out to foreign nations and blowing money or any of that kind of stuff. They were doing a pretty good job compared to a lot of other people. That's what he represents. So he comes up onto the porch and kicks the dust off before he goes in. There's a celebration going on inside. God found a reason to celebrate. That wasn't a sound he'd heard in a long time. Apparently the father couldn't celebrate with the older son that much, given his attitude toward the wayward brother, toward sinners or tax collectors. And he asked the servant, what's going on inside? We don't, this is, doesn't happen all the time. Your brother came back. And your dad is so happy about it. He called us to fill, kill the fatted calf. And the whole village is here. And we're having a gigantic celebration over, over the return of your brother who was lost. And now uh, he's found. And now we're all celebrating this. Now, rather than being pleased by the safe return of his brother, and rather than being pleased by the heart the joy that was in his father's heart, the older brother says, I'm not going in. 
I won't go in. I won't be a part of it. And in his mind, that is no way for dad to act. Just like with the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus' portrayal of God. To them, that is no way for God to conduct himself with any kind of a God. And the reason is, as he complains in the passage, is, is that as his father comes out, and it's one of the saddest pictures to me, really, and not only in the parable, but in the whole Bible, the father hears that the son won't come in. And he has to leave the celebration inside and come out and deal with this older brother. And the older brother is ruining the whole thing for him. And the older brother, in his complaint, essentially says to the father, this is no way to conduct yourself. Because if this is how you treat repentant prodigal sons then it's going to give people the wrong impression of you. And the conclusion that they're going to come to is that it doesn't pay to live a nice, obedient, good life. That there's no reward of that that comes from you. That the only reward thing that you reward is coming back from prodigal living. So in other words... Why wouldn't everybody just go out and become a prodigal and then come back to you? In other words, you're sending the wrong message to people. They're going to use it as an excuse to sin. And he said, listen, I've been here. I've been good. I've been obeying. You kill the fatted calf for this guy that's been out there spending his money on who knows what and you know what. I couldn't even get a goat from you to, 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 to sacrifice and enjoy with my friends. The father says something interesting to him. He said, Son, all that I have belongs to you. You could have taken a goat or a hundred goats. The reason you never took a goat to celebrate is celebration isn't in you. You don't know how to celebrate. And the father speaks again in essence to the son and says to him, My goodness to this other son has not cost you anything. I'm not taking of your two-thirds of the estate that goes to you. I didn't touch any of that. You have all that wealth. You have the relationship with me. You have all those things. It does you no harm to join in this, this celebration. And, and so the reasoning that the father is trying to, to do with the son, the, the son there in that situation. And one of the saddest things, to, again, to me about the whole passage is when the father speaks to him there and he said, Son, you are, verse 31, you are always with me. And I think that that, that broke the father's heart because the, I think the father is saying to the son, again in essence, is that, Son, there are more blessings to obedience than a goat or a fatted calf. You've been right with me. We have a history of time together here that he has thrown away. You didn't lose anything by being obedient to me. And so don't, don't look at it that way. Obedience is its own reward in the kingdom of God. Nobody loses anything in life by walking close to God and being obedient uh, to, to the Lord. And so here is the, 
the heavenly father is trying to picture of him trying to bring this uh, older prodigal to to see things his his way and to join in the celebration son this is this is not a this or that this is your brother this is a real life human being that has made a decision that affects his eternity and you can't find it in yourself to rejoice with me over the decision that he's made. And, and so he leaves it. The interesting thing about the whole parable is Jesus doesn't continue the parable to then say what the response was of the older son to the father. And the reason that he doesn't do it is because that is left to that son and it is left then to the older son that exists in every single one of us. The interesting thing about this passage, one of the interesting things about it, is that inside of me, there's a younger brother and there's an older brother. They both live inside me. And they live inside of you from Adam and Eve. Just varying degrees, whether you're a, more of an older brother person or more of a younger brother person in terms of you know, where your temptations are in life and that kind of thing. But they both live inside of us. The fascinating thing is they're both prodigals. They're both prodigals. But the older son doesn't see himself as a prodigal. But he is wasting his life as thoroughly, even more thoroughly, than the younger son. When we look at someone who takes and heads out into the world and they're going to live a life of sex, drugs and rock and roll and all of the things of the world and live for the flesh and live for sin and all of those things. And if a person stays in that condition all of their life and at the end of their life they're on their deathbed, we look at them and we say, what a wasted life. And one of the things that Jesus is saying is that it is just as easy to live my life with a misunderstanding of the heart of God for sinful man in the world, to end up at the end of my life in a hospital bed someplace, and for me to then look back on my life if I'm an older brother and to realize I have completely wasted my life. And how does a person waste their life? By failing to live my life in a way that properly represents God in this world. That's the highest meaning to life for those of us who know the Lord. And here is a guy, because of self-righteousness, thoroughly enmeshed in a, a religious system and all, and yet he is, um, his heart is a million miles away from the heart of God. And he is wasting his life in terms of as an opportunity to represent God in this world as effectively as the younger son. We can tend to look at these three parables and say, well, they're essentially all the same. Lost, found joy, lost, found joy, lost, found joy. And it's true. But there is one minor difference between the three of them that's worth noting before we just close up here uh, this morning. And it will only take me just a moment. The difference between these three parables is that the sheep, all, the, the sheep, the coin, the son, all of them lost. But the sheep was lost because of his own stupidity. Sheep are not smart animals. <laughs> they don't say, okay, I'm breaking out of this herd. 
midnight tonight, going to get out. They're just dumb. They just head off, they wander off, and they end up lost. Just because they're stupid. You ever been stupid? Oh good, I thought I was alone in the room. I've been stupid, I know stupid. The interesting thing about the coin is that coin was lost, but it was accidental. It wasn't deliberate at all. The sun got lost, that was deliberate. That was rebellion. And the beautiful thing is, is a lot of people find themselves in a lost condition. Not everyone does it, all right, give me my inheritance, I'm rebelling against God, all authority, and I'm going to head out there, and I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to go out. And do Some of us end up in this world, we end up way out there, far from God, have a huge history in sin out there, before we realize how stupid we are. You look at the culture, how young children are that are being exposed to sin. Sin that will take them into bondage for the rest of their lives. And they are in bondage before they even know, have enough sense to even begin to make a decision of right and wrong in this decision. They're kind of like that sheep that's out there on the thing, where they find themselves, here I am in this place, way out there, far away from God. I am a tax collector. I am a sinner. But man, the devil got to me way before I could... Uh, multiply. And the same thing with, with the coin. People get out there accidentally. They didn't intend to do it and they did this, got with this person, this thing happened and then boom, I'm way, way out there. And it was an accident or deliberate. And the beautiful thing about all of it is to realize is that no matter how we end up out there as a tax collector, as a sinner, that this is the heart of God toward us he doesn't care about the history he knows the history he loves us he looks for us and if we will just turn to him and come to him your very own personal celebration in heaven can occur this morning Jesus is revealing the God of the Bible is the God who loves to find repentant sinners and then celebrates with all of heaven when he finds them. If you sit here today and you've never made Christ your Savior, never trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, that celebration can await, awaits for you today. All that can take place. Your name gets put up on the marker board or whatever screens they have up there or whatever. I don't know how they do it. Boom, the whole place celebrates. Martinelli's. A great time. Heaven's just waiting to celebrate. And an opportunity to bless the Father's heart by turning to Him. And there's going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. They have a, a badge on that says, Pierce, you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to invite Jesus into your heart this morning and allow that celebration to take place. Isn't it wonderful to realize we think we have to come to God and, and then God, I did this, and then God, I did, and then God, and God says, excuse me a second, could we get a robe and some ray and some sandals and the fatted cat? He already knows. He'll move right on with a celebration and take you into a whole new life. So if you need to do that, or maybe you've known the Lord and you've been away a while and you know better and you wonder, will he take me back? He will.
and he'll run to do it. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God that we serve. And that's the God that we need to represent in this world. Let's stand together and we'll pray.